and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible guest. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, where I work with business leaders and athletes and teams in both sports and business. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. And the way we do it is through one-on-one coaching and facilitating discussions and teaching frameworks and tools and all kinds of mechanisms to help people with their communication, with their leadership, with their teamwork. And see, we believe that these competencies are anything but soft. And when you call them soft skills, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. You can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I really have been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Additionally, I am a coach by training, and I love working with leaders like today's guest. Even though I don't coach him, he's going to talk about his experience being coached and what it was like to cultivate his mindset, some of his strengths, some of his weaknesses, and how he could build the culture that he's built at the organizations that he's led. And I love working with people like him that are in similar positions. And if you're interested in executive coaching, feel free to email me. My email is brian at strongskills.co. Would love to riff and talk to you about what I offer and what some of my coaches that are on our coaching bench also offer. So thanks to all of you who have found me and my coaching practice through the podcast. It really is overwhelming to get notes from you, uh, to get notes from strangers who are just saying, hey, I love the podcast. I'd love to learn more about what you do for a living. So happy to share and would love to connect with you there. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. 
Thanks to all of you who continue to support the podcast and let's share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. So I mentioned that our guest today is no stranger to getting coached. So our guest is Rand Fishkin and Rand shares his experience getting coached, mentored. He really is an open-minded learner and he's also been the co-founder and CEO of audience research software startup, SparkToro. He's dedicated his entire professional life to helping people do better marketing through his writing, videos, speaking, and his book, Lost and Founder, which we talk about a ton in today's conversation. I highly recommend you get his book, even if you're not a founder. Rand talks about mindset throughout the book. He talks about leadership and culture, and he is a vulnerable, open, transparent guy, and you're going to love the read if you're interested in any of those themes, so highly recommend his book. He also will talk about co-founding a company with his mom. He co-founded Moz, which recently sold to another company. So Rand is someone who does not mince words. This conversation went on for a while, and it's because Rand and I really connected. He is somebody who cares deeply about people. He's ridiculously curious, and he's also not afraid to admit some of his flaws and some of his shortcomings. And at his core, he is somebody who wants to disrupt and transform how people are thinking and challenge the status quo in a number of ways that you're going to learn a lot about in today's conversation. So I'm just fired up to share my new friend Rand with you. So maybe sit back, grab a glass of wine. Don't do that if you're in the car. But if you're listening at home, sit back and enjoy this conversation. It's wide ranging. So without further ado, here's Rand Fishkin. Rand, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I wanted to start by just complimenting you and congratulating you. I know Lost and Founder has been out for a while now, but it was new to me. And honestly, your work is new to me. And I, I know you have a massive social media following, but it's always amazing. I know when we're in our industry or we're in our world, um, there's so many amazing, interesting people out there. And I'm grateful to April for saying, hey, Rand would be someone who I think you'd enjoy chatting with. And I've enjoyed learning about you over the past couple of weeks. Uh, and where I wanted to start was with when I asked you, hey, what would you want to talk about? You mentioned this idea of chill work. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about that in the context of my life. I was the kid when we were growing up. My dad is an entrepreneur. My older brother is an entrepreneur. And when we'd go on vacation, they would have everything planned. We'd wake up early. Let's go for a hike. Let's go, go, go. And I was always like, can we just go chill for a little bit? Like when we went on a cruise, which I don't think I'm ever going to go on a cruise again, but <laughs> when we went on a cruise, I was like, this is great. I'm just chilling. And so if my brother and my dad listen to this, they'll, they'll probably be curious to learn more about what chill work is, but talk about SparkToro and, and the culture that you are building there and this concept of chill work and, and we can riff from there. Yeah, sounds great. Sounds great. Um, first off, Brian, th thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, huge thanks to April for connecting us. So to to dive right in, um, my previous company, which some folks in the in the digital marketing or software space might be familiar with, is, is called Moz. It was a you know my mildly big deal for a while. Um, started in two thousand one. I started it with my with my mom. Uh, Jillian, which mom and son, very rare venture-backed startup combination. But that company was uh, the opposite of chill, right? It was it was in that hustle culture, um, try to aggressively grow. You know, growth is the most important thing above sort of profitability and and uh, other incentives. 
we raised a lot of venture capital, uh, $27 million, $30 million, something like that. Um, and, you know, had uh, a significant run where things went well, and then a, a frustrating end, um, especially after I stepped down from the CEO role after about with depression, which I know you read about in, in Lost and Founder. Uh, this new company in a lot of ways, I think is a reaction to that. And I suspect many folks who have had experiences in their personal or professional lives that were frustrating, unfulfilling, problematic, have likely done similar things to what I've done, which is try to go way over to the other side, right? Let that pendulum swing pretty darn far. And the concept of, of chill work at its core um, is, is similar to things you probably heard before around like deep work or intentional work or, um, or even slow work, like the Italian slow food movement or slow neighborhoods movement. And the, the idea behind it for us is that rather than trying to maximize the number of hours that we put in, or even valuing the quantity of hours or quantity of work that we do, we really only care about results and being able to uh, stay emotionally fulfilled, uh, personally happy and, and healthy, um, and have a very long runway in our mental and physical capacities to be able to do this job for a long time, run this company for a very long time, um, not grow at all costs, work 10, 15, 20 hours some weeks and be totally cool with that. And so it's a, it's a really different philosophy. There's all sorts of you know, little elements that go into that. One of them, I'm sure folks in the sports world are very familiar with this, right? Like if you are in a happy and healthy headspace and you've gotten lots of sleep, I know pro athletes are like nine hours a night of, of sleep, you know, um, that you can perform, outperform uh, even in a few minutes, what you could do in hours of work. And we find that to be true as well. And so chill work tries to prioritize that high quality, high impact time over hustle culture, total work time. So you mentioned that pendulum swinging and your book, you even said before we started recording, there's a lot of darkness in there. There's, yeah. there's some failures, there's some relationships being you know, friction in relationships, you're open about your parents and your relationship with them and specifically your dad. But the beauty of the book is also you have gems in there about culture. I mean, the theories in there, the graphs, I, I literally took out one of your graphs around culture and competence and have been sharing it all week with my clients. And so the pendulum also has swung. I think at one point you had 120, 160 employees and you had this culture that you were really proud of and really fulfilled in creating a culture and vulnerability and psychological safety and everything the books talk about, it's clear that you were into. Yeah. Well, the pendulum swinging over with SparkToro, I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, it looks like there's three people here. And so as you think about what you're building at SparkToro, where are you getting fulfillment from a culture standpoint? Where, where, how are you thinking about it from everything you learned in building a culture? How are you applying that to SparkToro? Yeah, a big part of it, it I think is, uh, comes down to two things. One is an understanding of self. So I think there are people out there who are 
uh, able to very effectively manage and run a large team and deal with the many challenges and, and friction and politics and problems that arise from having a large team. And I think some of those are inevitable problems. Um, even if you perfectly design your company and your business and do near perfect hiring, you will still encounter those people challenges as you ramp up to you know, 100, 200 plus employees. Um, and so I know that that work and those environments do not make me happy. They don't bring me joy or fulfillment. I don't get pleasure from knowing that, whatever, 100 people have jobs at my company. 100, there's tons of jobs, right? Like, especially in the, in, the, in the digital and tech world, right? The demand is just way, way exceeds supply. And so- um, Hey, Rand, did you get fulfillment from employing those people in 2012? And when you're building it, as you're looking around, and did it feel good to, I think the average salary was $145,000. Yeah. Were you fulfilled when you were in it, as far as giving opportunities with what you were creating? Hmm. I received a lot of external kudos, which felt good. The external, the external forces and reinforcement of, hey, you're a job creator. You're doing, you know, good things for sort of your community or your, um, your neighborhood, Seattle startup scene. Um, that felt those external uh, validators felt good the actual process of running the team, no. And I could never shake the feeling, and this was you know, proven true time after time, that um, I was not, um, that those kudos weren't entirely deserved, right? That basically all these people would have jobs even if it weren't for Moz, and some of them would probably be happier in those other jobs, and um, they would be paid just as well, if not better, right? I, you know, we, as we were growing, Amazon and Google and Facebook and Microsoft were all like <laughs> ramping up into the very high six-figure salaries in the Seattle area. So it is, um, it's a little challenging to say entirely yes, but I think this is part of the challenge for entrepreneurs in general is that you. And, and all human beings, is that sometimes what feels good and right to you internally is not what you get externally recognized and rewarded for. And that conflict can create um, a challenge, I think, especially, especially when you're young and a dude. Like uh, women have you know, massive amounts of challenges in, in their professional and personal lives too. I don't want to pretend that that's not the case or that it's not harder. But I think for, for men, especially because we culturally and societally have this expectation of um, external production and economic engine, um, you know, being the economic engines for our, whatever, selves, family, communities, et cetera, um, that sometimes those external forces can can push, especially young men and young entrepreneurs, to um, do things that don't make them happy, but feel like they're supposed to be doing them. Achievement, often very achievement driven yeah. and, and based. Yeah, yeah, and I, um, not all of that is entirely negative. I think it's okay for some cultural forces, 
you know, both pride and shame to nudge us toward things that are generally good for, for the whole of society. That's, that's fine. I like that. But uh, there's a lot of unhealthy things that are not good <laughs> for you or for uh, the world around you. And we're nudged to do those things as well. So yeah, I think it takes, sometimes it takes a decade. Sometimes you never get there. You never are able to, you know, wake up and see the world around you. I think a lot of a lot of folks in, in the Seattle area who have had interactions with him or folks in the global community who have kind of uh, say this about Jeff Bezos, right? That like, that, that guy seems like his priorities are obviously very effective, very smart, very driven, and has some odd choices around his life and work and what, what he's, you know, working toward. It's interesting because I do think there can be a dark side to achievement or to greatness, however you're defining greatness. For me, I grew up in a house where my dad is in the Hall of Fame for his career, oh, wow. um, business entrepreneur, um, like super financially successful and mm. married to the same woman, happily married, I should say. Um, three, I think, solid humans of kids, me and my brothers, they if they're listening to this, I think you're solid humans. Um, and he was home for dinner every night at 6.30. Um, and it was at a time and during an age where technology wasn't in our pocket the way that it is today. But I think a lot of the people that I've run into over the course of my life will say, yeah, I talk to your dad all the time as a mentor to try to figure mm. out quote unquote balance, even though that word is a loaded word. People probably look at my dad and would say, no, like he did create amazing business and seem to have like a really grounded life. Like people will always say, he's so normal, your dad. He's just like That's... normal. And um, so he's not, he's not like Bezos or whoever else we glorify. Yeah, yeah. For you, what gives you fulfillment? Like what do you, re as you, as you both spark Toro, what are you focused on to ensure that you are having a fulfilling experience while running a business? Yeah, there's, I think three things matter most to me with Spark Toro. Um, number one is that the the three of us and whomever we hire in the future, and of course all the all the contractors and people who are in our um, employment orbit of any kind are have an excellent experience, right? That they are happy and healthy and fulfilled, and they enjoy doing the work that they do, and they are achieving mastery in their individual roles and purpose with, with the job and that they get the, the vision and the concept of like, hey, maybe we can break marketers out of the Google Facebook duopoly and, and think beyond those two companies for where to put our efforts. That is one thing. The second is customer happiness, right? So just people who use SparkToro get value from it and feel like, man, you know, I paid whether they whatever paid 50 bucks a month or they're paying us thousands of dollars a year for, for a bigger subscription, that they are feeling fulfilled, like, wow, this product is really helping me in my job. I never could have done this without this thing. And, uh, and then third, my real hope is that things like the chill work um, philosophy that we embrace and this alternative funding structure that, that SparkToro has, has built, we're sort of a, we're not venture funded, but I didn't have the capital to bootstrap it entirely. And so we have this sort of alternative funding methodology. I'm hoping that ideas like that will take root in the entrepreneurial community and other people will say, wait a minute, 
maybe I don't have to build a huge, high-risk venture-backed business to have a successful and recognized business. Maybe I don't need to pursue growth of all, at all costs to be a successful entrepreneur. Maybe I don't need to you know, embrace hustle culture and 60-hour, 80-hour work weeks. Maybe I can find this, this balance between working when I work best and doing my best work um, rather than every, you know, every hour dedicated to work. All those things are part of that kind of being the example, setting an example for future generations and entrepreneurs. So those are the three big ones. You talk about values a lot in your book and specifically around this idea of transparency, authenticity, generosity, fun, empathy, and exception, which you had a nice acronym for called tag fee. Yeah. Um, yeah. Over at Moz, right? At Moz. And so when I hear you talk about like what fulfillment looks like for you with Spark Toro. You talk about, hey, we're happy and healthy. We are helping other people with the work that we do and we're disrupting or we're changing the narrative potentially on, on how people think they can build a business. Um, so as you think about those three, A, I don't want to load up questions here, but with tag fee, like what got in the way of you making tag fee a priority? Was there anything that got in the way of you um, being successful with tag fee, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I have a second question, but I'm going to hold off until okay. you answer. That. Um, yeah. So, so short answer to that is I think um, tag fee and the, the core values that we established worked uh, quite well when we were small and hiring relatively slowly and came apart at the seams as we attempted to grow the team quickly. I, I think almost any, CEO or manager that you talk to, no matter their company size, when they start adding relative to their existing organization, a large amount of new people at a quick pace, a lot of cultural things come apart at the seams because it's very difficult to onboard and, um, and kind of uh, uh, culturally imbue those values into a new generation of people rather than kind of one at a time. Um, the second thing that really Heard that was I think that when I when I stepped down as CEO, the new CEO who came in, um, my my longtime COO, uh, she should have, in my opinion, changed those values to be reflective of the organization that she wanted to build. And I think she, for whatever reason, had hesitancy around that. And did you think that then, or you think that it retrospectively? Yeah. More retrospectively, I think maybe it was a couple of years into her tenure that I, I told her that I thought she should do that. It certainly wasn't day one, right? Day one, I was like, yeah, keep up tag fee. Um, but a few years into her tenure, I was definitely like, hey, Sarah, you gotta, you gotta change this. These are not your values. This is not the company that you wanna build. And I think the, the disparity between the way you wanna run the business and then the values you say the company has really throws people for a loop and that disconnect is hard. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think Ma's ever changed those technically, but they, they, st they stopped talking about them at least. So, so I'm, I'm really curious about this then we're going to come back, but you know, right now Peloton's going through this whole ordeal Ooh. with their CEO yep. and he's ousted. I don't think anyone would disagree. Like Peloton has revolutionized how people are thinking about exercise. And it's just a fascinating, remarkable company. Um, but you will often hear 
well, that's a founder, but they're not going to be a publicly traded CEO. And that's something I hear often like, oh, this person can't be a publicly traded CEO. Your eyes went up and to the right when I just said that and your eyebrows went up and you're right. So yeah, what are your thoughts on that thinking and that belief? Yeah, I, I have eye roll emoji uh, in many ways on, on that. And that is because, uh, first off, I think the incentive of current public markets especially in the United States, are, are broken in a million ways. Like you, I, I don't think it's possible to be what public market investors really want from a CEO and a business, and also to be a good human being who does well by their team and themselves. Mm. Um, I, I think those are fundamentally incompatible. That's not to say there aren't a few CEOs who are kind of like, you know, basically F the market. I don't care about my public market investors. If they want to invest in me, go for it. But generally their companies are undervalued compared to potential, you know, other ones. Um, and so I roll at just the general structure. I think that, I think the public stock market system um, and the way that capital pursues investment is busted, right? Would just, you ever take a company public? I would not. Yeah. No. Um, oh, oh, actually, let me modify that. I would not do that in the United States on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. Um, I might be willing to do it in some of the alternative markets. I know that um, some folks have looked at stock exchanges in London as being as a you know more small cap public company stuff. There's interesting things that you can do, I think, outside of um the U.S. model and can you unpack that a little more for us? Because <laughs> I mean that that's a pretty big statement, right? Oh yeah, um, and, ready and, for my macroeconomics lesson here. <laughs> I mean, let's let's make it like one hundred and one for sure. for us because the reason I I think it is important is because there might be people listening to this whose dream it is to IPO, and yeah. you know I think a lot of people that are making investments. So if there are people on here especially as we record this, we've seen SPACs, for example, uh, come and, and blow up. So every everybody follows the market. I think they are looking to the market. I think most people that are listening to this are in the market in some capacity sure. from an investment standpoint. So I think it's an interesting statement that I haven't heard before where a founder of a company would say, yeah, I would not um, ever IPO um, on the, on the U S market. So can you just give us a quick summary? Uh, it's probably more complex than we're going to make it. I almost want to, yeah, maybe rather than give you a summary, cause I think that might be a little dry and like, okay, here's the big incentives of, you know, the wealthy billionaires and the, the money managers who manage it. And here's why they sort of pr prefer the, all these strange things and how they impact, political and economic landscapes and, and the mark, the public markets, da, 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 da. I think maybe it's more interesting. I'll tell you one story that encapsulates for me why I would never take a company public. I'm going to anonymize everyone in this because I don't have um, permission to share. And I'm, I think probably this person wouldn't, wouldn't want me to share, but a friend of mine, uh, this is a, a while ago, uh, years ago, friend of mine was a public company CEO. Um, and I remember I, I visited uh, him one morning, we were supposed to get together for, um, you know, sort of drinks, breakfast, chat, and, you know, about, about Moz and about what his company was doing. And, uh, he, he kept me waiting for like 30 minutes, you know, just sit in the lobby, twiddling my thumbs, like, oh, come on. And anyway, he gets together and he's like, Randa, I'm so sorry. 
you would not believe the bullshit that you have to deal with as a public company CEO. He hadn't been CEO for a very long time, maybe maybe a year or two uh, after after they uh, IPO'd. And he was like, for example, this morning, um, an organization um, that does that does market research, a market research firm, was contracted by a um, one of these hedge fund investors, right? So hedge funds have billions of dollars of capital. They they invest in certain things. So they were they were contracted. They were, this research firm was paid by the hedge fund to do what's sort of called oppositional research on my friend's company. So basically, release a bunch of stuff that makes them look bad, so that the price would go down, because the hedge fund basically was in a position where they really could benefit from my friend's company's stock being down. And he was like, "So I had, you know, I had to go on CNBC this morning and talk about like this research that had come out, and I'm not allowed to say it's wrong because the public markets only allow, you know, the the SEC only allows me to make." Um, impactful statements once a quarter when our earnings are about to come out publicly. So I couldn't actually fight against the research. I just had to suggest that the motivations of the research might be wrong and that directionally, you know, we were still planning on on hitting the, the goals we had talked about in our previous earnings, blah, 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 blah. And I had this, I was like, oh, and what happened? And he's like, well, the shitty thing is a bunch of our employees lost tons of money um, you know, thousands of dollars in, in their stock market value. And some of them, because of when their exercise periods were coming up, we're going to like have all these shitty things happen to them. And the hedge fund like cleared a few hundred million dollars off of this. I was like, wait, this is legal. The hedge fund can just hire someone to take a crap on your company and you are not allowed to refute it until a month and a half from now. He's like, oh yeah, they knew the timing. <laughs> This has happened to, we've had a podcast guest who this has happened to. Yeah. I know people. Oh, this is not uncommon. Who this has happened to. And, you know, look, I think people aren't going to, people aren't going to be sympathetic to your friend who's the CEO of a publicly traded company because they're going to be like, oh, well, look, he's got all this money and all this, whatever. Sure. But, but what about the team? But like, there are so many other people that are impacted by this, first of all. And second of all, just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you're not a human and, and it's still wrong. And, and <laughs> sure, I think it's fine to say, hey, you know, Rand's friend, he is going to be fine. He personally right. is. But I don't know how you can put yourself in his shoes and say, now, what is the right thing for a CEO to do in that scenario? Right. And the answer is, there is no way to win. The, the forces arrayed against you are going to screw you. And you just kind of have to live with it. Yeah. And know that that's part of your life and job. And your employees will be super pissed at you. And they'll all be like, can we trust our CEO? Because this research came out and you can't say anything to them. <laughs> it's just, it's all insanity. It is interesting. Cause when I go back to those core values, which got us to this point, transparency, authenticity, generosity, fun, empathy, exception. Those words are hard for a publicly traded CEO to have or to do. And then it brings me to what you mentioned the three goals are of, of Spark Toro and how you're thinking about happy and healthy. We're you know, helping others and we're also exceptional in some way. We're disrupting in some way. What do you think would get in the way for you of being able to execute on those three things? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it's truly, if we're talking about in a public market scenario, um, it's truly the incentives, which are essentially you know, very, very different. They're, they're around show the maximum growth rate that you possibly can um, 
and sort of beat market expectations quarter after quarter. Hey, Rand, uh, how is, about forget public? How about just yeah. in general? What do you oh. think in the future would get in the way of you oh, being able I to see. execute on these three things for Spark Toro? Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, I think that a a much more challenging market environment could really hurt that, right? So if we found ourselves in a place where, you know, the digital marketing industry was undergoing a, you know, huge transition, I, you know, I don't know, let's, let's imagine that it's sort of like the transition in the early 2000s from like print and, and old school media to digital and dollars are just flowing out, um, I think we would we would be really challenged by an environment where, you know, we're fighting against the tide instead of fighting with it. I hope that we would be able to change our business and you know recognize that that shift early and, and make those changes. Part of that is that's another reason why I love staying small. Like tomorrow, if Casey and I have this, my co-founder and I have this conversation all the time. Tomorrow, if all of our data sources for SparkToro disappeared, we're essentially public, social, and web uh, data, we could quickly pivot and probably in six months have a business that provides similar value from other data sources, right? Like we have backup concepts and we like being able to do that. You know, in five years, as we build our business on more and more on top of these things, become more reliant on that stuff those changes become harder. If you get to a team of 100 or 200, if you have investors who put in $30 million, that all changed, like a lot of that changes. Instead, we get to worry about how do we stay small, nimble, profitable, and happy for a long period of time. I wish that there was more media, more awards, more recognition, more people doing interviews, more people celebrating the culture of small entrepreneurship, slow entrepreneurship, instead of just Zuckerberg and Bezos and Musk. Yeah, so many ways to eat a Reese's is what I always say. There's so many ways to go about doing it. And that's one way, but uh, profitability or, you know, for me, and even in my business, like I got to a crossroads this year where I had to decide, do I want to scale this thing or do I want more of a lifestyle business that really works for me. And even with my clients, we call it lifestyle plus. Like, is there a way for you to scale? I think that's how I would even classify how you all are doing it. It's like, yeah, you are creating a product that is scalable, but your lifestyle is not being affected. So people often talk about a lifestyle business or a scalable business. And I had a client who is in branding and marketing and he wanted to create a lifestyle plus business. And he actually just exited, by the way, um, his business and you know, I think he's very happy and healthy. Um, yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's interesting when I think about happy and healthy for you, you talk about depression during your time um, building Moz and some of the darker times for yourself. Break, walk us through 2018 and launching SparkToro and where you've been from then until now, especially during a pandemic, during mm. racial and social unrest. You're in Seattle. It's been... Uh, an epicenter for a lot of change oh, yeah. and a lot of deep, hard dialogue over this time. Um, so how has your happiness been over the last few years, given the world has been a challenging place to navigate, I think, for all of us, to be honest? Yeah. Um, ooh, heavy stuff, Brian. So uh, let's see, a bunch, I mean, I, like a lot of people, 
during the pandemic, during the early stage of the pandemic was optimistic. You know, I think I, I had this like, hey, this is super scary and tough, but we're going to hunker down for six weeks, quarantine in and out, boom, bang. <laughs> boom and bang. Boom and bang. <laughs> um, and and it is, uh, yeah, it's remarkable. I think, I, I think the United States had its largest number of deaths yesterday from COVID that, that we've ever had, right? And the, the whole pandemic. So it's, you know, um, it's been a very strange experience to have, to be an optimistic person, to be happier than I've ever been in my professional and personal life um, over the last four years. Well, yeah, over the last four years. And, and even during the pandemic, um, that's a strange position to be in. And part of that I think part of that stems from intentionally designing both a business, well, two businesses, right? I, um, I think I mentioned I'm also the creative director for a video game um, and, uh, and my personal life in such a way that they really match what I love and want to do uh, personally and what I want to see in the world more of versus less of. Um, some of that is, you know, coming around to a place in your life where you have those strong beliefs and you have things that you love and hate and you get to lean into what you love and lean away from what you hate. Um, and some of it is just the absolute complete luck of the draw. So, you know, Spark Toro, we, we talk about how, you know, is Spark Toro a lifestyle business? Uh, my sense is Lifestyle business is a term that is used pejoratively by wealthy investors who are looking for more entrepreneurs to do growth at all cost. They need, you know, many tens of thousands of us every day to, to try and pursue that business model because only one in a few thousand will actually, you know, get them to their Facebook size exits that they need. Um, and so I try not to use lifestyle business because I think that that doesn't work. But here's the wacky thing. So in, in Moz's you know, first two years of its software business, it, it had a very nice growth rate. SparkToro is beating that right now. Hmm. Why? There's only three Why? of us. Why? Why? Why yeah. is it beating that? I think it is beating that because we know what the hell we're doing. <laughs> We've done this before, right? Casey and I have done this before. I think my co-founder is um, absolutely one of the most outstanding product building engineers um, out there. And I think we've done a ton of intentional design that lean on all of our strengths, things that we're good at versus things that we're not good at. I, I don't bother with things that I'm not good at. And we designed a business that leans into things that we are good at. Um, I also think the market conditions are great. Right. What, so, is, what does success look like for SparkToro? This is wild. So for, for Moz, we raised $30 million. If we didn't return, which we the company exited, it did not return this amount. Um, if it didn't return, you know, five to 10x that invested amount, it's essentially a failure, you know, a write-off to certain to a certain degree for and just uh, to add some more color from the venture capital uh landscape, right? So I think yeah. you do a good job explaining this in the book. Let's just say a venture capital fund is investing in 10 companies. The goal is that two of them turn into quote unquote unicorns and have outsized returns. The other eight they kind of went off their books so they can take the losses. Um, and that's sort of how they get these great returns for the people that give money to those venture funds. Uh, that's sort of the quick 
and so I think I, I I don't want to cut you off there, Brian, but I think it's really important to understand that that math is off by an order of magnitude. Mm. What actually happens is uh, two thirds of venture funds will not meet their minimum bar for investment. So even though they'll put money into a hundred companies, 200, 300 companies, usually somewhere between hundred and 300 companies over a fund life cycle, um, they will not hit the minimum, you know, invested return that they have promised to their investors, which is essentially meet or exceed the public markets. And notwithstanding the, the two thirds, the one third who do do better, they will on average put money into 500 companies of which fewer than 10 will return uh, 10X or more. Usually one or two will be those unicorns that are returning like you know 50X, 100X. And then we're talking about 450 company deaths and 40-ish cotton stuck in the middle somewhere in between companies. Moz was one of the 40. Mm. So it's a, like, it's a successful, it's a successful company, but you're, you're saying in the, <laughs> even though you're successful, you're not successful. Yeah. Moz grew hundred uh, percent year over year for seven or eight years in a row. And then, you know, growth slowed. It basically hit about $50 million in revenue by the, the you know, the last report I saw before I stepped off the board um, of directors, which was maybe a year and a half before it sold. And uh, it was, you know, profitable to the tune of 20% of that hitting the bottom line. That's a freaking great business if you and I own it. (laughs) And if venture investors own it, they're like, God damn it, this sucks. (laughs) Like, just just stop making me come to board meetings and like get out of my portfolio already, right? Because you're really, you're very annoying that you keep our capital tied up. We'd rather you either go under or just sell for peanuts or like, find a way to grow, but, but just quit this, you know, sort of slow, steady, profitable thing. That's really annoying. Uh, so Spark Toro for, for Spark Toro to succeed with the model that we have chosen, we have 36 angel investors. Um, they own about 25% of the company collectively. And our model is they put in 1.3 million. Uh, we, with the first 1.3 million in, in profits approximately that we make, we pay them back. And then we all participate in dividend sharing pro rata to the degree of our ownership for as many years as SparkToro runs. So it's built for profitability. The more profits you guys make, everybody wins. And this is a long game. Let's build this business together and make this a great business, a successful business. (laughs) Make it a great fundamental core business, not a how do we acquire tons of users and then find someone to sell to, you know. If SparkToro ever sells someday to an external acquirer, you know, our investors make lots of money from that too, but we don't need that, right? And so we can be just a very different kind of company. It's weird that after, you know, essentially not even four years of operating SparkToro, this company is much closer to being a success for its team, its investors, its founders than Moz ever got to. And just once again, so people are all speaking the same language here. If I am an angel investor with Rand and I put in $100,000, then you know I probably love as a human being getting a check. Let's just say they're just churning off and I get a $100,000 check every single year and I sit there and do my podcast. Like I'm probably going to be pretty happy just getting a $100,000 check from the engine that Rand's creating. So 
are you finding, look, you are someone who put your book out there. You're someone who has a big social media following. Are you finding more and more people are knocking on your door and saying, Hey, Rand, how do I do this? How do I start my business this way? Or are people still chasing unicorns, so to speak? Um, I think for every million unicorn chasers, there's one person <laughs> who says, Hey, Hey, Rand, I'm interested in this alternative style investing. I, I hear from a few of them um, every month or so, but it is, it is not very many. It has not become popular. I have yet to see, you know, any major media publication really write about these kinds of uh, things in a big way or broadcast and amplify what, what these types of businesses are doing. There's a few of us, you know, there's companies like Wistia and Buffer and um, Balsamic out of, out of Bologna, Italy, um, that are trying this approach. There's the Tiny Seed Fund, which, which Geraldine and I, my wife and I invested in out of Minnesota, but it is, it is teeny, teeny, tiny. We are either just at the start or, you know, it's just a very small portion of the market. There's a couple of things that are crazy about this. First of all, I mentioned my dad earlier, his company was always profitable. That was yeah. like how they earn their money. Um, but this is, this is new, this model, right? Like <laughs> how hey, dumb is that? It, it's, I mean, it's madness that, you know, this model that's been around for hundreds of years, which is make more than you spend yeah. and then take the profits and reinvest in growing the company and paying the people and making money off it. It's, it's wild. Then in the past 40 years, that, that business model, at least in tech, almost never existed. Yeah. And you have venture funds that are outside of tech that are, are doing this as well. So it's, it's really interesting. And we could spend the rest of our time talking mm -hmm. about it. What I really love about your book is there are technical elements. Um, there are personal elements. There are um, cultural uh, elements to the book from a business standpoint. Uh, so it does a nice job of weaving this all together. And once again, we could probably talk for like three hours and break down all of them. But I think yeah. what I'm most interested in is leadership, is culture, is around mindset or wellness, if you want to call it. One yeah. of the interesting things when you launched Spark Toro, you you sort of said, hey, I, I, we went right with uh, Moz, we're going to go left with Spark Toro, mm -hmm. is going remote. And you said from the onset in 2018, so before we hit this pandemic where everyone most people were forced to go remote. When you set it up to be a remote company, how did you do that? How were you thinking about that then? And how are you thinking about it today as well? Yeah, I think um, remote first and remote only means a lot of things culturally that I um, that worked really well for me already because uh, even in my you know many years with Moz, I was often on the road. Right. I did lots of speaking and conferences and venture pitches and all, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. I think I was on the road hundred days a year for many of the 17 years that Moz was, was running. And uh, so had gotten comfortable with remote. Uh, Casey, my co-founder had worked remote at a couple of his previous companies that he'd been part of. So we had a good fundamental understanding of how it worked for us. And we have a very asynchronous communication style. A lot of people are are shocked to hear Brian that uh, Casey and Amanda and I are on a on a meeting call together once a month and sometimes not even that. So, so right, we just we do stuff in email. We have things that are on our plate. We do them independently. I don't know what Casey or Amanda are, are doing this week. I, I don't know 
it's not that I don't care. I, I care. I just don't need to know. I trust them to be doing the things that are most important in, you know, their work and they know how they can contribute best to the company. And it's not, um, you know, we have big projects that we want to get done, but we, we don't have hard deadlines. We have basically soft deadlines where we know that we're working towards something. And when it is polished and ready, we launch it. Um, so very, very different type of culture, super different kind of collaboration. Um, you know, we have no, we have no system for how we answer support requests. It's whoever gets to it first. <laughs> and, and it's the three and, of you, the three of you. And it's three of us. And we've designed the business in such a way that it can run through essentially just two channels. And that is email and calendar. If it's, if there's nothing on my calendar and my e inbox is zero, I have no work to do. I'm going to go inside and play video games. Well, or work on the video game that I'm supposed to be designing. Um, but <laughs> that um, that's that's pretty beautiful, very, very different thing. And this is actually, you know, the video game team that I work on um, with Akapara Games, the studio that's building in Los Angeles, same thing. The, the, the workforce is entirely remote. It's like one guy in West Virginia. Our designer is in uh, Romania, in Bucharest. Uh, our, our lead engineer is in Brazil. Like nobody's in the same two countries. Um, so it, it works close, because you design it that way. How close are you with SparkToro? When you go on SparkToro's website, you say, we're not hiring, we're, we're, we're not. How close are you to adding to the team? Um, and mm. if you were, what would that look like? How, yeah. how do you think about the growth that you do want to have that's best for you? Because um, that ultimately is what I've, I've taken away from your book and from talking to you. It's like, if I'm going to start this company, let's make it work for me. And yes. I think- a lot of people would say, well, and that's then, selfish, but like, we should be selfish. I always say like, fill your cup first and then give the overflows to everybody else. You can't. A yeah. lot of people, they empty their cup and then they can't, they can't do anything because they're not healthy. Exactly. And I think this, this comes back not only to your professional life, but to your personal one too, right? If you, I think this is, this is especially true for, you know, a lot of guys in their sort of working age, right? Twenties to fifties. Um, that we empty our cups professionally and we have nothing left to give personally and emotionally to our partners or, or kids or families or friends, which, you know, there's, there's this sort of epidemic of, um, of men without friends in the United States. And that, that breaks my heart. I think that's um, just awful. I, I can't imagine a life without friendship, but it is, um, I think if you are selfish first in the design of your business and you build something that works with uh, what you want to see more of in the universe and what you know works well for you, what you're good at, and you design the business to not require any of the things that you suck at, even more important than optimizing for what you're good at is I, I hate doing paperworky stuff, like just all, all kinds of, you know, financials. Uh, legal, blah, 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 blah. And so we have outsourced folks for that. And SparkToro just doesn't deal with purchase orders. You know, so, uh, a Fortune 500 came to us and they were like, hey, can you jump through all these hoops? Because we'd like to buy a big SparkToro license. And we were like, no, <laughs> we're not doing it. <laughs> like, sorry, sorry, friends, you can go online and put in your credit card just like everyone else. That's how we take uh, payments. And, um, and it's beautiful to be able to say no to things, even if you know they would make you more money because that lets you say yes to more opportunities, I think, and gives you more 
emotional bandwidth and work bandwidth and, and personal bandwidth, if you design your life that way and your work that way, I think special things can happen. I think, weirdly enough, I think we would see more growth, more better, higher quality companies, happier employees and teams, happier founders. That's my belief. There's two things I think about with yes and no. One is a lot of us have to earn the right to say no. Um, so I think if you hadn't gone through saying yes to everything, um, mm. as painful as it probably was, building Moz, I don't think you would have appreciated the power yeah, you, of saying You wouldn't no. know, right? You wouldn't know. Yeah. So I, I think mean, in Lost and Founder, that was like one of the biggest pieces of advice that I gave to anyone who was reading the book is don't do what I did and start a business out of college. Yeah. Go work for a few startups, go work for a few companies and figure out what you like and hate. Because I had to, <laughs> I had to figure it out by by messing it all up. Yeah, but I think a lot of us do. It's just to degrees, like you probably don't want anyone to have the pain that you yeah. went through, yeah. but pain's a teacher. And so here you are in chill mode doing things that other founders just don't think of doing. And you're you're still young and you're still <laughs> able, like, you, like you're still able to do a lot. So yeah. I, for me, at least, I had to say yes to learn what I want to say no to in the future. And mm. so I think sometimes when we, a lot of people now say, say no, get really good at saying no. I think it depends on where you're at in your life and in your career. Like That's you have now advice. been through a lot of hard times with business to learn, Hey, what do I want to say yes to? And yeah, what's worth it? Yeah. And what do I say? No. So I say you have to earn the right to say no. That's one. And then two, it is true. When we say yes to something, we are saying no to something else. And yeah. like, I think, I think those are things that have been big for me. And I think, from my seat and my perspective, you wouldn't be here today if you hadn't gone through what you had gone through. Mm -hmm. um, and I even think about your upbringing and the idea of transparency and, and lying oh, yeah. and, and those elements that you talk about a lot. It's like, if you hadn't witnessed maybe small little lies here and there, maybe you wouldn't have such an appreciation for transparency. And so I think we often look back and that's why I asked you about Sarah, like, well, did you say that to her then? Or do you yeah, say that yeah. to her in hindsight? Years later, right. Because we're really good looking back and thinking about what we shouldn't have done. But I think there's great value in appreciating where we've been while acknowledging, hey, I don't want to do that again. But thank you for getting me here and just know that that's not going to be my plan to get me there. I think all of us have that in our world in some way, shape or form. And it's not it's not saying that we want to be that or have someone else go through what we've gone through, but pain is a good teacher. As long as we're listening to it and learning yeah. from it. Um, I, th I think it can be really, really. Valuable. That is, that is a phenomenal uh, insight, Brian. I think I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I am very guilty of making statements that are more absolute than they should be and don't recognize the journey that's often required to get there. I think I'm so desperate for preventing the pain that I, that I felt in others. You can, you can sense it, right. When you read lost and founder that like, how oh, this Rand guy really doesn't want me to make these mistakes, but you're right. Sometimes you got to make them yourself before you can learn. There was a piece in the book that really got me where you talked about self-esteem mm -hmm. and you mentioned like when you're at Moz, you could have all of the best uh, aspects of a deal come your way. And you, and you can look at it and say, this is great. This checks every box. But if I have to keep it secret and not publicize it to the world, like I don't think I would do the deal. And that there was this need to be public and 
for your own self-esteem. And it yeah. was almost as you were writing it, there was some shame involved with that. You were like, gosh, from my lens, I was like, gosh, how pathetic am I that I need that uh, attaboy. External validation. Yeah, external validation. Do you, how do you manage that now? How do you manage that today? Because you do have a big social media following. You are here with me on a podcast. Sure. Like how, how do you manage your own challenges with self-esteem? I cannot quite explain what happened um, that changed it so dramatically, but I can say that if you compare Rand of 10 years ago, uh, my DNA about the need for public praise has dropped massively. It's not entirely gone. I still appreciate it. I still like to share things and I, I, I love when people find value in them, but I no longer mind when something I do doesn't resonate, right? Doesn't hit. I, um, I would not say the same thing today, right? If somebody was like, Hey, we, you know, we want to acquire SparkToro or whatever. We want to do some deal with, you know, your video game. And, but I, you know, it'll have to be all in the background. You can't write about it. Be like, well, is it the right thing for me and for the game and the team? Great. Let's do it. You know, I, I don't need the external validation the way I did. Do you know why? Do you know what changed ago. for you? And the reason I asked is I literally was having this conversation with a client. Today. Yeah. And so I think it is so human, which is probably why your book has resonated with a lot of people, not to give you the external validation, but it, it, it I think it was very human. And I think a lot of us, even like I wrote a book, it, it feels really damn good when I get an email from a stranger who says, gosh, your book made a ton of sense and, yeah. and really changed how I think about things. Like, hell yeah, that's why I wrote the book. I want to help people. And so like one of your big things is wanting to help people. And, and so like, yeah, go, if you have any thoughts on how you've been able to manage that need for it versus maybe the appreciation for it. I, I have two uh, thoughts. I think one is... Um, my friend, Will Reynolds, who I, I don't know if you've ever talked to him or encountered him, but he, he'd be phenomenal to talk to as well. He's how I met April actually. Um, but uh, Will, Will with one L uh, and he talks about this concept of enough. Do you have enough? Have, is your, is your fuel tank on praise or money or, or life satisfaction or, you know, your, your relationship with your romantic partner is, is it enough? And I feel like I have enough in a lot of those areas, not all of them, but, but, um, you know, on the romantic partner side, I've always had it, which is well, all of my adult life anyway, which is amazing. But, um, yeah, I think on the professional side, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like I have enough. I don't need more digital marketers to tell me that my work built their career. I, I have enough of that. I want to keep doing it. I love doing it. I love hearing that from people that, that it's been helpful, but I don't, I don't need it. I'm not, I don't have that hole in my chest that can only be filled by thousands of people telling me, oh my God, your latest Whiteboard Friday video, like really upgraded my career. I don't need it anymore. I have enough. The second one is, um, I am as excited to do things that I want to see in the world, um, sort of personally and values wise, at least as excited, if not more, 
than I am by things that will earn me praise. That's, I think that's a tough place to get to, right? But even if the things that I do don't resonate with other people ever, I still want them to exist, right? I, I want Spark Toro to exist regardless of whether, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are into it and using it. Like it, it should have existed. It should have always been there. We need that alternative to Facebook and Google. Um, this video game, it should exist. It should be out there. If 5,000 people play it, great. If 5 million people play it, that's awesome. I love it, but it should be out there. I want it to exist. That's, that's the goal more so than how many people are going to say, oh my God, you changed my life. All right, Will Reynolds, I don't know anything about, and mm. I I want to chat with him because yeah. like, I love, you were saying I have enough, but what I heard was I am enough. And like that word enough, when you Ooh. put, right, I am enough versus I have enough, those are very different. Um, those are very different. And I would say I have enough. I don't think I am enough. Yeah, why not? I... I would be very scared to stop a journey of self-discovery and improvement and getting better and becoming more thoughtful and caring and knowing more people and helping more people. I, that would scare me. I don't want to, I don't want to ever stop that. I don't know. Maybe when I'm 80, we can have this conversation. I'll be an old Jewish man. I don't care. Just bring me my bagel. But I, I you know, for the next, for the next 40 years, I and still, uh, I still want that. That word enough is one of my favorite words to talk about. Mm. It is because to me, satisfaction and fulfillment are what success is all about. So when I hear you talk about, I want to have the video game out there because I believe it should be out in the world, that's fulfilling for you. Mm. And yes. so I would hate someone to not to neuter that and to not do that because they're like, no, I'm good. I'm complacent, right? Like, I'm good. Like, complacency to me that doesn't sound like feeling alive or being alive. Like it, it complacency and satisfaction, we use them interchangeably, but they are so different when I'm satisfied. I think I'm going to be more successful when I'm complacent. I think I'm going to go toward failure. And, and by the way, chill time does not necessarily have to be complacent. Mm -hmm. um, like, so I think we mix them together and I think enough, I, if we had more time together, we would do a deep dive into I am enough. I have enough. Is it enough? do I, have I learned enough? Cause I agree to me, like, I want to keep learning and growing and, and, and I am enough, like who I am at my core, I am good. I am sound. I am strong. I am moral and I'm going to make mistakes and I'm imperfect and I'm imperfect. So I want to grow yes, and I learn. Yes. And so there's like, no perfect yeah. human being learning and growing is, is core to that. I, I think there's this, there's this saying that a lot of folks use when they, um, when they talk about their, their kids or their partner or whatever. And Geraldine and I say it to each other, we're like, you can do anything, but you can't do nothing. And you can't do everything. Yeah. And you can't do everything. Great, great addition. Exactly. So I want to, I want to be able to do lots of things in the future. I think Spark Toro can, you know, enable that. I think that conversations like ours can enable that and, and knowing each other can enable that. I think that the video game can enable that but I never want to stop and say, I'm done. I am enough. I've done enough. 
that there is no there is no enough. And certainly, you know, when harking back to your conversation about the pandemic and issues like um, racial injustice and and those sorts of things, that work there's no chance that in our lifetimes these huge problems will be solved. And in our own little ways, right, tiny little ways, I, I realize that we're having this conversation audio, so folks probably can't see. But but right behind me, there's a cardboard sign that says Black Lives Matter on it, right, and that's behind me every time I am on video and, um, and, and that, you know, that stuff and many other issues like it are very important to me. I don't, I don't think I'll ever stop needing to make an impact on that. I don't, there's no enough on those, on those kinds of things. You're very mission-minded. You're very passionate. You don't want to get rid of the passion that you have, the energy that you have, um, the chops that you have too, and the expertise that you've developed. Um, it's really powerful. Look, we could keep rolling. We could keep going. Um, <laughs> I've never been to Seattle, which is nuts. It's probably like, I bet it's the biggest. Oh, uh, Houston, I haven't been to. But it, Seattle's up there, like one of the big cities that I've never been to. I've been to Vancouver. I've you Best know, August in the country. Yeah, like, I, I just haven't, I haven't been there. And my wife went with her mom. You know, they went and did a daughter, you know, a mother, daughter. So I will get out there. When I do, awesome. I'm going to hit you up. Um, and hopefully we can have some chill time together. Um, I want to make sure we cover this video game because you've talked oh, about sure. it and it, you talk about video games in the book. I mean, you started it with cheat codes. And I mean, I heard Contra when, when I was, when we started the book. Konami right? code. Yeah. So like clearly video games have been something that you've enjoyed and, and been a passion of yours. Um, talk about what you're building, why, and, and what that looks like. And uh, yeah. yeah, it sounds like something you're pretty passionate about. Uh, this is this is one of the things, Brian, that is basically a childhood dream that um, came to fruition because I, I mentioned that that Moz had an exit. Um, I, I was no longer involved in the company, no longer on the board, but Geraldine and I still owned a lot of shares, and so you know, kind of had this financial windfall after a long period. And uh, one of the things that that I had always wanted to do was create and and launch and build a video game. And so uh, I actually started it before the Moz exit. It was going to be a very tiny budget game. And then the budget got increased um, after that deal uh, deal went through. And yeah, it's been a phenomenal learning and growth experience. You know, basically the, the whole process of like learning a completely new en- industry. I've never done business to consumer product creation before. It leans on some skills I already had, like software development and design and those kinds of things, and some skills that I have, you know, nothing in. Um, so it it is a way to both challenge myself and fulfill, you know, I kind of think of 10-year-old me, right? So if you think back to yourself at like 10 or 11 years old, being able to like shake that little boy's hand and say, I got you. I'm doing the thing that you wanted to do. Um, that's, I think, a, a beautiful gift to be able to give yourself later in life, even even many decades later. And that is that is what this uh, what this game is all about for me. If, if you're looking for specific, it's um, it's a game where you will do foraging and and monster fighting in a magical version of an Italian town, and you run a restaurant there and you bring back the ingredients cook them and upgrade your character and go back in the wilds. When so. do you feel most alive? <laughs> I know it's a loaded question. This is a, this is a great question. I recently did a 
a, a very serious stint of attempting to do remote work. And it was in Costa Rica, which I'd never, I've never been to Central America before, um, or, or even to Mexico or Hawaii. So this is my first time in like a tropical place uh, and great experience in a million ways. We were there for almost a month, um, working remotely from an Airbnb. And I, again, going back to, to childhood, when I was a kid, my parents lived in unincorporated King County. So like far suburbs of Seattle, not even suburbs, super rural. Out back of our house was like a huge forest. I never even knew how far you had to go before you encountered other people back there. But in this forest, there was a pond where um, every spring and summer, thousands of frogs would spawn. And so as a little kid, I would go out there and I would spend like whole days, just my summers watching the frogs and like looking for frogs, and trying to see which, you know, which of the little tadpoles turned into the tiny little ones. I was obsessed with amphibians and, you know, I did all my book reports on them. And, you know, when you have to go to class and give a presentation, I was like, hi, I'm Rand and I'm going to talk about frogs. Um, and in Costa Rica, I, I got to go with some, you know, guided tours late at night in ostensibly moderately dangerous jungles um, with lots of poisonous things and, um, you know, cover yourself in Picardin and, and long sleeves, even though it's boiling hot and, and hunt for frogs, like look for rare poisonous little, little, um, poison dart frogs, which are super colorful and gorgeous that holy crap, Brian, I don't, I can't tell you. It was like this thrill and anxiety and anticipation and childhood fulfillment and just um, brain engagement, every kind of amazing feeling, um, and emotion. And I, you know, it was Geraldine and I together. So, you know, I got to sort of share with her this, um, this childhood experience relived in a, you know, in a place I'd always wanted to go to where I'd written book reports for like a dozen years as a kid about that. Oh man, that was, that was living, right? Like that was life. That was being alive. You mentioned that my wife and I were just talking about, we have a five-year-old and a six-year-old and we talk, we're talking about, do we want to go somewhere for a little bit, even for a month with the kids yeah. and just go experience something. We actually, we mentioned Costa Rica. That was actually one of the places we said, you know, just go and, and be for a little bit for you kids, no kids. Uh, we don't have kids. Yeah, no, it's, um, we talked about it a lot, I think in our thirties and made the call that, that neither of us were passionate enough about it. And both of us had enough reservations that, um, that we didn't want kids, but we do have, we're very lucky to have many friends and family members with kids. So we get to have lots of kids in our lives, even though they're not ours. Do you envision living remotely somewhere uh, for a longer period of time or is Seattle where you're your roots are and is that where home is for you or how do you think about that in the future this is that's another tough one um we we are talking about experimenting with um moving to italy which is which is where geraldine and her family are from and she has lots of family back there still uh i love it there um obviously the video game right it's italian uh, and so i think at some point we'll experiment with the thing there but um we also have close friends and family in, in Seattle and in California. So it will be, it will be tough. I think these are, 
it's amazing to be able to have the privilege to have the option, right, to discuss those kinds of things. And yeah, lots of stuff goes into it, including including lots of like, well, what you know, what do we think about the long term of the United States, right? Like as a as a country and a place that we want to pour our our hearts into. Do we feel like this is the kind of place that represents us and our values? And can we make a difference here? Heavy. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll close with, with this before we started recording, you mentioned pessimism and optimism. And um, even in the book, you mentioned, gosh, like, am I coming off too jaded or pessimistic? And, and then you said to me before we started recording, I'm actually working on, you know, another book that's going to be more of an optimistic story. And I hear the pessimism in you, even as it relates to our country or yeah. as it relates to business and, and, you know, how America is set up. Um, but you also said if I were to write another book, it would be probably a little bit more optimistic. So where are you as you think about pessimism, optimism, um, and the seat that you're sitting in today? Um, I, I am deeply optimistic about a lot of the things that are going on in, I wouldn't say just my life, but sort of my, my general orbit, things that are going on with my friends and family and, and my wife and, um, and me and the projects I'm involved in work and professional stuff, the digital marketing world. Um, I even have some optimism for tech and entrepreneurial stuff. Um, and I have deep pessimism and concern about structural societal issues in the United States specifically. I think it's hard to know, you know enough about countries that you, you don't live in. I have some um, optimisms and fears about things that happen in, in Europe and Central and South America um, and parts of Asia. But um, yeah, I, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated, right? And I think you bring all of these, these feelings um, and try to make yourself more data informed as well, right? I don't wanna, I don't wanna discount that the United States is both a vastly more progressive place than when I was born. And I'm fearful about where that, where that progress might go in the future. Um, so hard, I don't, I don't know. How, how, how do you think about this? Like, are you, are you American? Your, your dad was uh, American, I assume. Yeah. My parents are from here. Um, I live in Washington, DC. I'm, I'm from the DC oh, wow. area. Yeah. So, you know, when you start having conversations that get political <laughs> and you're from DC, I think, you know, I started to kind of run away from a lot of those conversations mm. um, to be to be transparent. Um, and when you're in D.C., I think you kind of see the belly of the beast sometimes when it comes to politics. And I'm talking about actual real politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think complicated is the right word. Um, I tend to be highly optimistic. I tend to believe that our society is better today than it was yesterday. I think we got a lot to figure out. Um, yeah. I also have friends with all kinds of different political perspectives. We've had people on the podcast with all kinds of political perspectives. I do worry about politics in our country and the way it's set up, um, two-party system and where we're at. I worry about 
our media and, and how people get their media. I think social media, that's another thing I had on my list of questions to talk to you about because mm. you have this massive Twitter following. Um, I'm sure it's helped in business in a lot of ways. Um, but I think social media, we really need to have honest conversations about the impact it's having on children. Um, like I, I have a lot of concern about that. I have sure. a lot of concerns about this phone that is in my hand and the addiction that I have to it, um, like many other people have. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I would say over the last two years during the pandemic and during a lot of the unrest that's gone on, um, that's probably been the most pessimistic I've been mm -hmm. on where we're at. And I'm not one to be like, oh, this generation is this. And I think it's lazy when we talk in generations. So um, but I do. I think there are a lot of concerns. I think there are a lot of concerns from our last president and what we saw. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think about I've got kids. Um, I also have a grandma who's a Holocaust survivor. So yeah. my, uh, you know, lost her brothers, you know, to a genocide. So perhaps her. Brian, that, my uh, my maternal yeah. grandmother, same, same thing. Yeah. So I don't know what was your what was your grandma's what was she like for you? I know you actually mentioned your grandparents. I think yeah, in the book. like yeah. So I I had I met this is uh, wild, but I I knew three of my four grandparents and actually a, a number of my great grandparents as well who were all either survivors or escapees because um, my you know Jews they all marry each other right because they're not allowed to marry anybody else for a long time. I'm the first person in generations right to marry outside of um uh, judaism but in, in my family and yeah the i think you you get a very interesting perspective from that right like my maternal grandmother was very quiet about it she just she didn't talk about it she didn't talk about you know she lost her um her mom and three siblings um one of whom was very young and um, basically made her way with her dad to the UK. They put him in a, in a prisoner of war camp because he spoke German and they were like, is he a spy? They eventually let him out and, and he um, came with my grandmother to the United States. But yeah, it was, um, it's intense to see these kinds of things like happen to other people in other places in the world and then um, reflect on like what, you know, what opportunities are there to reflect on the idea of, you know, the United States, like cl closing its borders more and more to immigrants and knowing that people like you and I couldn't be here, you know, would never have, have made it in an environment like this where there's, um, you know, such a, such a closed border system. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I, I think, I, I think the, what I would say about my grandma, she too did not like talking about it. It wasn't yeah. really what she talked about, but when she would talk, it was often there's evil in this world and her message to us was actually of gratitude for the United States. And yeah. like, she tells an amazing story about coming over on a boat and seeing the statue of Liberty and an American soldier looking at her and saying, ma'am, you have no idea how happy I am to see that lady again. And my grandma goes to him, no, you have no idea how happy I am to see that Statue of Liberty. And I get chills as I tell that story. So that is the story that I hear of. I hear her being in a camp and people smuggling in food and yeah. trying to help. Um, so there was evil, but there's also humanity. And so you kind of have like this pessimism and this optimism, like, hey, things can go bad really quickly. And um, the worst 
is possible, but then there's also like the best. And she was so grateful to build a life in the United States and the freedoms that she felt like she had. And so that was embedded into us as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think it does shape how you see the world. Um, certainly it's had it an is. impact on me. Um, is, I find survivors can either be like highly bitter and mm. for good reason, like everyone's out to get them, you know, like all this bad stuff happened, which if you saw what they saw, you can empathize with. Um, my grandma was more grateful. And yeah. I think that happens with a lot of people that go through trauma. You have people that have a hard time ever coming out of that victimization and the bitterness. And once again, like I haven't been through any of that harsh of trauma. So privilege is a word you used earlier. Like I have no issue talking about privilege on multiple layers, but like, I'm amazed by the people that do go through traumatic experiences or have to live in worlds that are traumatic and still are able to have gratitude and still look to thrive. I find those people to be insanely inspiring and I still have empathy and understanding for those that are victimized. Like I, yeah. I think you can hold both of those truths. And so as you ask me that question, I think I hold both. I think I do have concern about where we are and where we're going. Um, and I am think I think I'm a believer in the core principles of this country and um, in the goodness that exists. And um, net, I mean, net, I, yeah, a lot of folks net, like, with it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of folks look at the you know pandemic and they're like, my God, you know, all these people who just they don't care about themselves or their neighbors. Like they're not willing to do simple, obvious things, whatever it is. You know, wear a mask. Uh, you know, wash your hands. Uh, get vaccinated like but actually you know 60 percent of people do did get vaccinated and like yeah, how do you look at it how do you yeah, look like at you it? go into the grocery store and there's there's two dudes who aren't wearing masks but everybody else is right and so you're like hey actually there's a lot of good here and it's just I think naive to... optimism is dangerous though and i i think positivity like if we just are positive and we're just you know it's all going to be good i think that is just as dangerous as sure. people that say it's all bad and and so I, you'll find with me and we'll get to know each other better like i love polarity i love the power of and i just think it's there's so often nuance needed which is why i have a long form podcast and we're still talking i just <laughs> i think you can see people as people when you really and it can change it can change so fast i i don't know how you know if you spent like much time in germany but Oh, I man. haven't. It is fucking great to be a Jew in Germany right now. Yeah. So great. Like people are just, when they find out that I'm Jewish and I will, you know, usually like I get on stage, right? In an event in Germany and I'll be like, hey, you got the Jew. And they're all like, uh, yeah. <laughs> can we laugh at that? I don't know. But, yeah. it, you know, you just have this. Um, I have always had extraordinary experiences in Germany and it's like one of the most truly friendly to not just Jewish people, but, you know, lots of people, visitors, right? Like, it's just a really nice country to go to. That is so, that's wild that that happened in two generations. Yeah, it's crazy. That gives you hope, right? It does. It's, it gives it does. me so much hope. Dude, all right. I still got you here. So I'm going to still pick your brain on things that I'm really curious about. Social media, net, net positive. Like, how, how do you, how do you make sense of it? Because as I think of like, I love Twitter, love it. Yeah, um, I, I think I, I think I am way, way more informed human being because I'm on Twitter. I enjoy being there. I've made friends through Twitter. 
I wouldn't be talking to you if it wasn't for Twitter. Absolutely. And, and so I'm grateful for it. And when I'm with my kids and we're reading a bedtime story and I'm checking a tweet, something is up amiss and off. And I'm not immune to the destructiveness that I think can go on with, with our social media platforms. And then as we're talking about politics and, and how, it, it, how it's set up and how we have these echo chambers, I do think that there is a lot of bad shit that comes yeah. with it. And we're not even talking about our youth and the comparison that they have on Instagram and women and girls and suicide rates going up and, and awful stuff that I'm not even in that stage of my kids' lives. And um, so, I mean, you know, this world, um, yeah. you have, you have a better understanding of it than most and you've benefited from it from a business standpoint. How, sure. how do you make sense of social media? Uh, let's see if, if I were to categorize it, I would say that it is a technological innovation uh, similar to the printing press or to radio or to television and um, societies in the past found ways to um, mitigate the risks of those inventions and to optimize for their good mostly with with plenty of errors right um and plenty of problems and issues i think um yeah the the fact that social media has not is so new right we're talking not even 20 years old really 15 maybe at the most uh the fact that social media is so new means that we're that generation who's like experiencing the printing press or the rise of radio or the rise of television. And anytime I look back at those early generations who wrote about, for example, you know, the rise of television and how it was destroying the soul of America and, you know, eating our children's minds and turning them into zombies and video games, video games, great example, right? In the seventies and eighties, like tons of dungeons and dragons. Do you remember the, the satanic panic of the eighties, right? With, Dungeons and Dragons. I, I didn't play until I was an adult. It's freaking great. I love it. Can't recommend it enough. Um, I wasn't in that, but I was in a golden eye with snipers and guns yeah. and all kinds of other stuff. Right. And it was going to make you a terrible person and be For desensitized sure. to violence and all this kind of stuff. So I think social media is like this. The, um, I think the, the biggest problem that we have that is unaddressed is that we have a fundamental like societal level core misunderstanding of freedom of speech. So freedom of speech is like a big value to Americans and, and to me as well. And it says that the, you know, basically that the government cannot regulate what speech is allowed and what is not, but every private citizen and every social network or media publisher does not have to publish things that they don't want to they are allowed to choose what they allow and don't allow. You get to decide whether a Black Lives Matter sign is in your window or not. No one, no government entity can force you to do that. And you can choose to display that or any other message that you want. That's, that's powerful. I think that's a beautiful thing. And unfortunately, what freedom of speech has, has been perverted to mean is all platforms, all communities must allow all speech. That is not what that means. That is not what that means at all. 
and I think, unfortunately, for some reason, the, the leadership of many of these platforms have been through both their financial incentives, right? Twitter has an incentive to maximize the engagement. They know that saying hateful and terrible things on that platform gets lots of engagement, gets you to check your tweets while your kids are you know, going to sleep and, and gets you to re-engage. Um, and Twitter is frustratingly one of the least problematic of the, of the major networks on this front. Um, that is a problem that we, we absolutely have to solve. Um, I think that, that still lies ahead of us. All right. I think I said 30 minutes ago, we're, we're going to wind down. We're still going, which is fine by me. Uh, this will be my last question. And then if, if we riff for a little longer, it's up to you. Um, depression, mental health, as we're talking about social media, you have gone through some darkness in, in your life. I, I have not experienced bouts of depression. Um, I think all of us are susceptible to it. Um, so I haven't yet, it, it could happen down the road. Um, your experience, and I think it's really important when we talk about depression, mental health, it's like, Hey, what is your experience? Because yeah. what works for you may not work for the next person, but it might be helpful for them as they navigate what might work for them. And it's interesting. I have now worked with, I was, I was doing the math on it. I've probably worked with over a thousand people. Like, so I've worked with people who are depressed. I've worked with people who are suicidal um, mm. because I work with people. And when you work with people, the numbers are that you're going to, you're going to work with some people that are going through stuff. Even on this podcast, you know, I, I had a conversation with someone uh, probably three years ago. And then recently he publicly talked about his suicide attempt. Mm. And we recorded the podcast within that time period that he was having suicidal thoughts and, and behavior. And I had no idea. Like I, I recorded the podcast, it's public, uh, it's out there, no idea. Like that was it. And so I think one of the things as we surround ourselves with humans, we often don't know what they're going through. Um, and, and so I always just wanna try to become a little more educated on it. Um, so for you and, and your challenges with depression, can you shine some light on that and share your experience and what might've been helpful for you um, as you went through it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, I, I think you probably read the, the chapter in lost and founder about it, but I'll give a like brief summary, which is essentially that, um, as Moz, the company that I had founded and, and was running as CEO, um, had kind of, you know, raised more capital. We had raised an $18 million round from some investors I really admired. And we were growing past, you know, 120 people, um, Revenue was growing dramatically, and I was, uh, I think, feeling some combination of fear and uncertainty and doubt about the future, and a lot of anxiety about the direction that that things were going internally, and the new demands that I had basically um, consciously, half consciously, half unconsciously put on us by raising all this extra capital, and you know now our growth rate needed to be. Uh, even more exponential. And that, I think those were the catalysts for this sort of um, long episode, multi-year episode of deep anxiety, doubts, darkness, inability to sleep, health problems, you know, depression, all of that. Um, but I, I, have, I have talked to folks who 
you know, knew me in that time period. And they were like, I, I think the depression started hitting and then you cycled on all that stuff. So I don't know whether it was the external forces that impacted the mental state or the mental state made the external forces feel like, you know, I couldn't dig my way out. But what I ended up doing was having a conversation with my investors in 2014 and stepping down as CEO, replacing myself with, um, with my, my chief operating officer. Um, and then I, you know, I've written about this, that in, in retrospect, I'm not sure that was, that was the right move. I think I, I felt just as much pressure, maybe more than ever to have the company perform, but I had now removed the ability to impact that, um, in the ways that I probably needed to. And so that dichotomy was even more frustrating. And I, you know, experienced lots more, um, challenges around that mentally and emotionally, physically, um, over, over the next few years, it, you know, it got to some bad places, right? Geraldine, my, my wife, um, got to a spot where she was like, okay, when you come home, you got to stop telling me about work. Like we just, I know it's an important part of your life. Um, I'm with you when you want to celebrate, but I, I, I can't, this can't be the focus of our life. Um, just you ruminating and being miserable about everything that's going on. And, um, and work was my kind of my whole life for many of those years. Like, um, you know, I had a good, good relationship with, with my wife, obviously, but there was, there was very little else. Um, I think in a lot of ways, Moz's, my overcommitment to that job is one of the things that kind of took kids off the table for us. It was just, Hey, we can't add another obligation to our lives. Cause you are not a present human being. You are hustling. <laughs> is that a regret Rand? Hmm. Um, I think I regret that maybe we didn't have more of an, a complete open space to have that conversation. Um, I think that if I had found a, a place of chill work a little earlier, that maybe that, that conversation path could have been opened more. I still think we would have come to the same conclusion, but maybe that's, that might be motivated reasoning, right? And post hoc justification. Um, but yeah, I do have regrets about, I have a lot of regrets about the degree to which I poured myself and tied my self-worth and self-identity to this business. I think that uh, when I've talked to other entrepreneurs, I'm sure you've had this experience, Brian, that, that that's my identity is my job. The success of my company, the thing I built is who I am. It's not just my work. It's so it, coming from sports. I mean, we see it where athletes are their sport. Uh, yeah. I'm a soccer player. I'm a basketball player. And I've worked with a lot of college athletes and for most of those college athletes are not going to play professional. And so that's a huge transition for them because their whole life they've been the athlete and now they're 22 years old, which is a hard enough transition for any of us. Um, but especially for them, because that's where they got their achievement. That's where they got their rewards, the trophies, they were special. Um, and it's also even more tricky because there's some research around habits that when you attach your identity to something, I'm an exerciser, 
we're more likely to exercise. I'm a vegetarian and I eat a certain way. Well, now I'm going to eat a certain way. So I think one of the reasons we do it is because it actually does help us perform. And I think it can help us in the short term and really hurt us in the long run if we don't have clarity around that identity. I think that's one of the battles we all face is what's good for us in the short term may not be healthy for us in the long run. And so like high performance I mean, how many people do we see that are really successful in their, in their work, but have awful marriages? Um, it is so, so common. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is because we make it the mistake of thinking that what's good for us here is good for us over there. And those that can figure well, and that also, out. Yeah, go ahead. Also, I, this, this bothers the hell out of me. I never see, um, people in great marriages lauded for their great marriages. Yeah. Just never. It is not presented as a like thing to work toward. You are no one invites you on your podcast because you have a great marriage. A no great one plan. listens to pod. I mean, you know, this is not offense to podcast hosts, but there's no media outlets that are like, Hey, look at these people with a phenomenal marriage. Yeah. They're in no. the marriage hall of fame or they're marriage the parents, hall of fame. parents but of the 30 year. under 30 entrepreneurs, 40 under 40. Yeah. You made a billion dollars. All that stuff. You're an incredible athlete, right? We have these things that in our society are high worth, high praiseworthy accomplishments and things that are, you have a great marriage. Great. Don't, we don't talk about that. (laughs) Fine. Okay. That's, that's super weird because I can't, um, I can't imagine my life being happy and fulfilled without the partnership that I have with Geraldine. Um, I don't, I don't think I would be the human being standing before you, you know, when, when the chips were down, Geraldine always, always had my back. And I, and I believe that I've always had hers. And I think that's made us both better people. Um, And I think that our relationship has positively impacted literally hundreds, if not thousands of people around us. Um, But even if you go into that the other way, so even when I ask you about kids, I'm sure a lot of people are like, Rand, why don't you have kids? Are you weird? What's wrong with you? It's like, no, we probably chose that we're yeah. good. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Or if someone has a marriage that's bad, go get divorced. Like no one should be miserable. Like I don't divorce. I don't know for me. Like I grew up with this thinking, oh, they got divorced. They're bad. Like there's a story and a narrative and a lot of it is external to your, to your going back to the, it's like, who cares if you two aren't happy together, don't spend your whole life just trying to, in my opinion, this is me. If if my wife is unhappy in our marriage, I don't want her to stay with me for her sake. Like I, that would suck if she's miserable. It's Um, bad for both of you. And it doesn't mean it's not hard and there aren't arguments. And of course, like everyone has struggles in any relationship. If you have a bad partnership in business, you probably need to figure out a way to get divorced. Um, And, and it's probably not healthy for you to just keep making it work um, for the sake of the kids. Maybe that's my own bias because I'm not in it. My parents have not been divorced once again, but that's at least my perspective. I think we often say divorce is bad or you have to have kids. Like, well, why? Like there's nothing, what works for you? That is what we need to focus on. Yeah, this is, this is heavy as heck, but like my siblings and I have talked about like, our parents are still married and we're like, Oh man, they, they really should not be. They should, I'm not, I'm not sure how that relation, you know, it, it's got a lot of messed up attributes and I, I won't get into all of those, but you I talk about in the book. I mean, it's not yeah, like, 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 I it, think it's out there. Yeah. I think my, my, um, 
my parents would both be happier, healthier human beings um, if, if they if, if they had uh, gotten divorced. But who knows that? Maybe that won't be true in the further out future, right? They say that like sometimes marriages go through these really tough times and then later in life, you know, the partnership yeah, is Maybe really people important. have an agreement that works for them. And so they sure. stay with that agreement. And that, yeah. so my point is the judgment piece. Where, and, and that's to me, if we were to summarize like a lot of what we talked about today, it's like, hey, how do you make sure that you're doing something that works for you? Whether that's the business or your partnerships or the family or where you want to live. If you are afforded those privileges, let's take advantage of them. And yeah. let's make sure that you are going the direction that you want to go in, not the direction that our society tells you you should be going in. And that to me was one of the big takeaways of your book. Hey, here are all the reasons why what society is telling you might not be what's best for you. Cause from Rand's perspective, it wasn't necessarily best for him. Let's yeah, learn every, from his mistakes. Every chapter of lost and founder essentially starts with like a, you know, a quote from a famous person in startup tech world. And then the whole chapter essentially is like, and here's why embracing that advice did not work for me. Yeah. Um, and, and folks who are in that world will recognize a lot of those. I suspect the same thing is true in sports and athleticism, right? That there's like these fundamental beliefs from whoever it is, right? Vince Lombardi or, or um, whomever. And, and we, we like hold this truth to be so core to the practice and the history and our participation in it. And yet, um, you know, I look at, I look at somebody like, uh, what's her name? Simone Biles, right. Who yep. I think tried to really change the conversation. This was, um, the, the previous summer Olympics, right. Where she was like, no, not participating is not failure. It's not giving up. It's not weakness. I love that, man. I thought that was so incredible to just be willing to remove yourself from a situation that doesn't bring you joy and fulfillment and not succumb to this external pressure. And what a beautiful sentiment. I think we can all take away from that. Yeah. So that's a beautiful place for us to stop or quit this conversation. <laughs> I think it's been enough. Rand, I know you're active on, on Twitter. Where can people follow you there? The book is called Lost and Founder. Highly recommend. Uh, one of my clients is going to come by. I told him to come by later and he can have my copy, which is highlighted. And I think I got everything I needed out of it. I'm always nervous to give books away because I like having them. But then I'm like, what's the point of having a book if you're not willing to give it to somebody else so that Love they that. can enjoy it? So uh, hopefully he'll enjoy the highlighted version of it. But uh, Lost and Founder, they can get any you know anywhere books are sold. I got mine off Amazon. Um, but where where can people find you and the work that you're doing? And obviously that's highlight SparkToro as well. Sure. So yeah, I write um, longer form at sparktoro.com uh, slash blog, which is kind of both our company blog and my personal one. Uh, and uh, Lost and Founder, you can get, you know, wherever you want, Barnes and Noble or Amazon or IndieBound or Pals. Uh, I am most active on Twitter where I'm at Randfish. Um, and I, I also, I do have a personal account. It's under my wife's last name, Rand DeReuter on Instagram. If, uh, what you want to see is pictures of frogs in Costa Rica. And Geraldine also has a really cool blog and a website and, you know, yeah, she's, uh, she's a, uh, become so relatively famous the last few years that, um, it, it's weird to be like, oh, you're Geraldine's husband. I got Brian, I got recognized at the grocery store. This guy was like, Hey, uh, you were, you were at that terrible restaurant. I read about that. 
<laughs> hey, Rand, what do you think of fame? Um, it has benefits and drawbacks. Complicated. I have a lot of and statements around it. But um, it's not something, I think if it is something that you are actively pursuing, there's problems there. If it's something that comes along with other work that you do as a result of doing exceptional things in your field, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Awesome. Speaking of that, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn <laughs> is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. I know something that Rand believes is that you have a website where a lot of your stuff lives. So I have that covered somehow. Um, I, I didn't know that that was a thing, but when I was researching this, you talk about that. So I got the, my marketing side covered there. Um, so strongskills.co, we have you know, I write articles on there and we have the podcast there as well. Um, so Rand, this has been great. Uh, you know, I love how much space and time we had to chat. I'm going to go play with my kids without my phone and see how it goes. It's beautiful out here today. Um, but thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, Brian. I hope we get to meet up in person. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The concept of of chill work at its core um, is is similar to things you probably heard before around like deep work or intentional work or um, or even slow work like the Italian slow food movement or slow neighborhoods movement. And the the idea behind it for us is that rather than trying to maximize the number of hours that we put in or even valuing the quantity of hours or quantity of work that we do, we really only care about results and being able to uh, stay emotionally fulfilled, uh, personally happy and and healthy, um, and have a very long runway in our mental and physical capacities to be able to do this job for a long time, run this company for a very long time, um, not grow at all costs, work 10, 15, 20 hours some weeks and be totally cool with that.